Our text this morning in our series on Second Peter brings us to chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. Follow along as I read the text. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and he spared not the old world, but he saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. This chapter of Peter's second epistle began with a warning about false prophets in the Old Testament and false teachers of the New Testament. Both of those warnings are translated from compound words. False prophets is translated from the Greek word pseudo-prophetai, and false teachers is translated from the Greek word pseudo-didaskaloi. The prefix on both of these words is pseudo. That means that which is fiction or false. The emphasis of our text today is on those who prophesy and those who teach opinions and they teach them as doctrine. The primary stage for false prophets and false teachers today is television and the internet. They mix themselves in with legitimate media preachers and preach their opinions. However, there are entire cults that attempt to pass themselves off as Christians. You might Observe that they talk like Christians, some of them walk like Christians, and some may even be Christians. But their preaching is their, their own opinion, their own ideas, usually based on humanism, and uh, it seems like a dominant theme that they project is the word love, so oftentimes. The text in our study today is speaking about the damnable heresies, uh, uh, probably like the one I heard from Benny Hinn a number of years ago in a radio broadcast. He said, as he was talking about becoming a Christian, he said, don't let anybody fool you. You don't just become like God, you become God. Almost wrecked the car. So I was driving down the highway and he made that statement. I had just talked this passage in a class that morning and now I was on the way to Northern California that afternoon and I heard him make that statement. Don't let anybody fool you. You don't just become like God. You become God. Well, in all fairness, I would say of Benny Hinn that uh, I always liked that name, Benny Hinn, and his hen house was worth about $42 million uh, as he had built an empire preaching the prosperity gospel. But uh, in, in fairness to him, I did a little research this week. I hadn't heard of, any, heard of Benny Hinn in a long time, so I did a little internet search. And I found that in 2019, he did a pu public confession that his doctrine on prosperity, that God wants everyone to be wealthy, and the only thing that hinders us from being wealthy is our lack of faith, he acknowledged in 2019 there was no biblical basis for that and apologized for teaching and preaching that. But from what I was able to observe, his other heresies continue on. 
He was the one who said, if you uh, want some healing, lay your hand on the TV set and I'm going to pray for you. But before you do, send in a thousand dollars to show me that you're serious about this. So he renounced that as not being doctrinal sound, but unfortunately his views on uh, the interpretation of Scripture have continued through the years. Those are damnable heresies, and according to the Scripture, it's men like that. I guess I can't limit that to men anymore. There are probably as many women preachers in that vein as there are men now that uh, their, their preaching is to make merchandise of those in the congregation. I remember one particular man that was headquartered in the L.A. area. He was actually at Glendale. Uh, when uh, he, the pastor at Glendale and his wife left and went down uh, to uh, Orange County and started uh, Trinity Broadcasting, uh, and the man that followed them, my organist told me one day, I want you to meet him. I, I want to set up a luncheon for you to meet him. He's, you and he are exactly alike. Well, I listened to him on TV and decided there wasn't any comparison that I could see except we both referred to the Greek and the Hebrew. But uh, uh, his profanity was terrible uh, as he would be trying to raise money and he would say, why do you do that to me? You haven't lit the phones up. I don't know why you make me have to get into this mode. And he started cussing them out, us out, that were, that were listening. And now do what God tells you to do and light those phones up. And immediately the phones would light up and they'd raise five, ten thousand dollars in the next 15 minutes or so. Those are extreme cases. But there are so many that emulate that. Their objective, according to our scripture this morning, is to make merchandise of believers. The message then that Peter is warning us about is those false teachers that will attempt to make merchandise of us. Look with me then at verse 3. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. This verse sets forth for us then that which we have introduced this morning about false prophets and false teachers. The literal translation of this phrase says, and in the sphere of an intense desire to have more, by means of fabricated works, they shall make merchandise of you. The word merchandise is brought into the English from the Greek, from the, uh, Greek word. It is brought into the English with the word emporium. I don't spend a lot of time in shopping centers anymore. I don't know if there's any emporiums around or not that go by that name, but I go back to my childhood when we would go to San Francisco and go to the Emporium. It was a major department store in San Francisco and was the first escalator that I had ever seen. So while mom and dad were doing their thing, my brother and sister and I were riding up and down the escalator. It was a stair that actually moved and you didn't have to walk up, but you could walk up it and really get there fast. But you had to be careful when you stepped off at the top if you were walking uh, walking up. But that was at the fabulous emporium of San Francisco. It's a fancy word for the buying and selling uh, of merchandise. 
false prophets and false teachers are said here by Peter to have a desire to make merchandise of believers. And then in a further description of those false prophets and false teachers, it says, whose sentence as a result of a just trial now for a long time keeps on not presently being idle. Let me read that again. Whose sentence as a result of a just trial now for a long time keeps on not presently being idle. One might wonder at that when we marvel that God doesn't strike them dead for the things that they do. We had one one TV preacher said a sound heart and a sound mind and one dollar, please. Didn't cost you anything to go into his service in Chicago, but it cost you at least a dollar to get out. And uh, we have that kind of merchandising going on. Uh, It's not as obvious in this day uh, on the internet and the TV as it was earlier uh, when they would bring their tents into town and set up uh, almost like a free ring circus to entertain and to fleece the sheep. We wonder why God allows it, why God does not strike those dead that bear such false doctrine. And yet we are told here in the Scripture that they they are the result of a sentence that came as a result of a just trial that now for a long time keeps on not presently being idle. God is not idle. While we may not see His judgment upon those things, they are moving. The clock is ticking and God is working through His program. We have to be reminded of the sowing of the tares among the wheat in the parable of our Lord Jesus Christ when The servants saw the tares and weeds and thorns that had been sowed among the wheat. They said, shall we go out and pull them out? And he said, no, lest in pulling them out, you pull out some of the wheat. Let them grow together. And then at the time of harvest, we'll go in and pull the tares out and gather the wheat. But God is judging God's plan is working. And he goes on to say that their sentence that as a result of trial now for a long time keeps on not being presently idle and their utter destruction based on their response has not nodded off to sleep. God has a sense of humor as he pins his word and cycles it through those He has uh, ordained to be the scribes of His Word. God's judgment has not nodded off to sleep. Though it appears they are able to go day by day and fleece the sheep, God has a plan in mind and His judgment is real. So that verse should read, And in the sphere of an intense desire to have more, By means of fabricated works, they will make merchandise of you whose sentence as a result of a just trial now for a long time keeps on not being presently idle and their utter destruction based on their response has not nodded off to sleep. Now in verses 4 and 5, Peter gives us two examples of God dealing in judgment. The angels that sinned and the people in the days of Noah. Let's look at verse 4. The angels 
that sinned. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. This verse, of course, is a reference to the angelic infiltration that occurred in the time of Noah and was the very reason for the flood that's recorded in the book of Genesis. So we need to introduce a brief summary of the angelic infiltration so that we can understand what Peter's referring to here in our text and as it applies to the false prophets and the false teachers. He first focuses on the judgment of the fallen angels and then he'll come back in the next verse and deal with the people during that period of time. The best account that we have is recorded in the book of Jude. Remember, the book of Jude's only one chapter long, but it is crammed full of doctrine. We, uh, we offered a course at Channel Islands Bible College and Seminary, uh, an analytical, exegetical uh, study of the book of Jude. We took it word for word in that semester, part of speech for part of speech. It's not the kind of, of course that would appeal to a lot of folks when you get into the heavy grammar examining each word. But there is so much doctrine there that with every verse you've got to go to the other portions of Scripture and see what is in reference there as well. Uh, there was a, a Christian movement called, um, what was it called? Uh, one of those senior moments, uh, they, um, the vineyard, and uh, they instructed their preachers not to go to Bible college, not to go to seminary. They would lose their fire, and uh, they would no longer be effective. But through the years, they had some problems with that, because of some of the false teaching that came out and the lack of ability on the part of, of some of their pastors to even um, do expositional preaching. So they decided it was time their preachers went to school. So I walked into a, the first day of a semester uh, at Channel Islands Bible College and Seminary in the course that was titled an analytical, exegetical study of the book of Jude. And there were ten men that were lined up there from that movement that were there to further their education. I talked with them a bit and said, maybe you want to get into a different class. Most of their pastors have not had any kind of education. Most of the majority at that time had not even graduated from high school. But they had a zeal. It just needed to be properly channeled. And I said, we're going to examine every word in the text, uh, every part of speech. We're going to talk about verbs. We're going to talk about nouns. We're going to talk about adjectives. I think you might be more comfortable in Bible 101 or in one of the other theology courses. But they insisted by the end of the semester, we had one out of the ten that was left. Because it that the, the book is deep, and uh, to understand its depth, you've got to get into the grammar, and that just was not appealing, uh, even comprehensible, uh, for some of those that were involved. And then the denomination sent out a notice to their pastors, we're wrong, you don't need to be in Bible college, it'll put your fire out, just depend on the Holy Spirit. Well, I never questioned that. My dad never graduated from the eighth grade, didn't start preaching until he was 40. For 42 years, he had a very powerful and effective ministry. When, uh, when he went forward to uh, commit himself to preach, the, the pastor said, Sterling Welch comes this morning surrendering to preach the gospel 
And I thought either Dad had made a mistake or God had made a mistake or they both had made a mistake if that was the the uh, result of their decision because uh, he was an Oklahoma farm boy and he noted all, seen it all, and ain't going to change any ways about it was his English language. But I was too young and ignorant to understand, though I'd been preaching two years as a kid, that uh, God was the one that would see that through, and He had a had a marvelous ministry. So I'm I'm not faulting that. Uh, I'm I'm just saying that we need to use the tools that are available to us to understand if we're going to teach the Word uh, to understand it exactly. And that said, look at Jude verse six. The angels which have kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness, under the judgment of the great dead. This introduces to us the angelic infiltration, which is based on Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. It's identified in 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 19 and 20 and it's the point of our text this morning in 2 Peter 2, 4 through 6. The angels were the first of the creation of God. They existed before Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. We know that because they shouted for joy at the beauty of the new creation, according to Job chapter 38, verses 4 through 7. The record of creation of the universe given by Moses is simply stated in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It was an instantaneous creation that occurred as God spoke it into existence. The writers of the New Testament, when referring to the creation, call it a cosmos. That means an ordered estate. That's the word we get cosmetology from. It's an ordered estate. They do not use the word chaos, which means a rude, uninformed unstructured mass. The Hebrew of Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 use the description of a crude, uh, chaotic situation that was upon the earth. Isaiah tells us that God did not originally create it chaos. In Isaiah 45, 18, and yet in Genesis 1-2, we have it a chaotic disorder. After his attempt to overthrow God, Lucifer, one of the archangels, and the other fallen angels established themselves on the earth that is described in Genesis 1-1. Satan is called the prince of this world. John 12, 31, and John 14, 30, and John 16, 11. And he turned the beautiful earth that God had created into a chaotic environmental mess, into a disorder that the scriptures identify by the words tohu wa bohu in Genesis. The Spirit of God is said then uh, to move upon the face of the waters in the uh, Genesis account. That word for waters is melting ice and the word moved is the word incubated or brooded. As a result of Satan and his angels turning this into an environmental chaotic disorder, God put it into an ice pack. We don't have any record of how long a period of time that was. But then there came the time for God to create it for man. 
And so the Spirit of God incubated that ice pack and it became water. And then God began the six literal days of preparing that earth for man. Lucifer and the fallen angels had made the kind of mess that the environmentalists today believe that we are making of it, and they might be right about that, but God has a plan ultimately, no matter what the circumstances are. So, the result of God preparing the earth for man is found in Genesis 1-2 with the brooding of the Spirit upon the ice and melting it and then the six days of creation. That, however, did not end the angelic apostasy, but it actually set the stage for it to eventually be concluded. Satan, known as Lucifer, expresses his apostasy again in Genesis chapter 3 when in the garden he says to Eve, has God said that you can eat of all the trees of the garden? And she said, all but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God has said we can't eat of that. We can't even touch it. Now we're not sure where she got the addendum to that, to not even touch it because that's not found in the instruction that was given to Adam. But yeah, that if we do, we will die. And he said, you will not surely die, but you will be like God. And so they ate of the forbidden fruit. The satanic plot then continues through that period that follows as life then is propagated upon the earth. And when we get to Genesis chapter 6, we have the apostasy of the angels recorded that is referred to here in Jude verse 6. And it's the focus of our text in Second Peter chapter 2. And the angels, the ones not having made it a principle to keep of themselves uh, their original position of preeminent dignity, but once and for all deserted their personal dwelling place. This is, of course, a reference to the angels. And we would need to go back to Genesis chapter 6 and do a brief review to understand what is taking place. In Genesis chapter 6 verse 2 refers to the sons of God. There's no limit as to suppositions as to who the sons of God are. What we want to know is what God meant when in His Word, He tells us about the sons of God took them wives of all whom they chose. The sons of God are defined in Scripture in some places as believers, identified as sons of God. There are other places in Scripture where the term sons of God is identified as angels. We are able to know the distinction when believers are being referred to or when angels are being referred to in the Hebrew text by the definition of the Hebrew words. Sons of God, Benaha Elohim, is what we find in verse 2 of Genesis 6. Benay. Elohim is the term that is used of human beings who become believers and are identified as sons of God. Benehe Elohim, Elohim. The word, however, in Genesis 2, the reference is Benaha Elohim and is only used in reference 
to angels. We are told then that these angels, and they are defined, identified as fallen ones, that they took wives of all whom they chose. I would remind you that there is no Hebrew Old Testament word for wives, nor is there a Greek New Testament word for wives. The word is woman. The context and the the syntax determines for us whether the woman is a wife or not. This simply says that they took them women of all whom they chose. So there is the picture of an intermarriage between angels, fallen angels, and women. But that of itself is not quite accurate because the word took identifies to take by force and uh, the plurality is used there. What we have here is the basis, the beginning of foundation for Greek mythology and for Roman mythology which talks about God's coming down and cohabiting with women and producing a super race, being her and Atlas uh, and all of uh, the, the beings that are identified in mythology, whether it be Greek or Roman. They were not gods. They were fallen angels. And they took all the women that they chose and when they came into them, they produced those that were a super race. They were a combination of human and angel. Now, I know we could spend uh, some considerable time exploring all the details of this and dealing with the issues. Well, how can an angel that is a spirit being, how can he cohabit with a woman and produce seed uh, and and a super race. Uh, I can't give you the how-to. I can only tell you what God said about it and say that with uh, a great deal of confidence based upon the language that he used. So there was an infiltration where these fallen angels cohabited with women and produced a super race. The objective seems to be to defeat the promise of, of Jesus or of the Lord to Eve that her seed would triumph over Satan. So if Satan and his angels could infiltrate humanity so that there was no longer true humanity, then that prophecy of the Lord in the garden to Satan and to the woman could not be fulfilled. We know that because God says in verse 3, My spirit will not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. I've heard countless sermons identify this verse as the support that we are going to the span of a man's life is supposed to be 120 years. Man is flesh and yet his days will be 120 years. However, this is not a prediction or a declaration of the span of man's life this is a declaration, a prediction, a prophecy of God Himself that if He did not intervene in the uh, influence that was taking place and the intermingling of angelic life with human life, that man right there was flesh, but in 120 years, man would no longer be flesh. And the ability of the seed of the woman 
to triumph over Satan would be destroyed. So his days when he will no longer be flesh is 120 years. Some people say that Noah preached 120 years and uh, uh, was a preacher of righteousness because we see uh, verse 4 says there were giants in the earth in those days. No, the word is not giants. That would be the Hebrew word rapha. The word is nephilim, or as it's referred to so often today uh, on uh, the, the television and these various shows is projected as as the nephilim. The nephilim is the word that is used here, or the nephilim, it means fallen ones. And when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, they bore children to them, the same became mighty men who were old, or of old men of renown. The sons of God, the Benahi Elohim. But remember, he said, there were fallen ones in the earth. And as we look at the grammar, he couples the fallen ones with these uh, that sons of God that came into the daughters of men. These were fallen angels that cohabited with women and they produced a super race, super men. The basis then for Greek and Roman mythical Hebrew uh, heroes. But look at verse 9. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. The word generations is translated from the Hebrew word law, and it means genealogy. You see, Noah was perfect in his genealogy. There was no angelic infiltration in the family of Noah. He was perfect in his genealogy. He had three sons. They were married. He and his wife and their three sons and their three daughters-in-law. No angelic infiltration at that point. But all the earth, all the flesh had corrupted its way upon the earth. The word corrupt is shalkath. It means intermixed. There was an intermixing of angelic life and of human life. And the Lord said, all flesh, the end of all flesh is come before me. So God destroyed the earth and destroyed that infiltration and saved up only Noah and his wife. And that flood came at a hundred years from that point when 120 years even the lifeline of Noah would have been infiltrated. So at a hundred years God cut it short, preserved flesh, and restarted life upon the earth after the flood. Now we go back to our text in Second Peter chapter 2 verses 4 and 5. For if God spared not the angels that sinned. The word if is a first class condition. Since God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell. And herein, we need some clarification. He cast the angels that sinned in this infiltration into hell. But the word hell is translated from a variety of words in the Hebrew and in the Greek. The word sheol is the most frequently Greek uh, Hebrew word that is translated in the Old Testament by the word hell. In the New Testament, the most frequent word is the Greek word Hades. Sheol means the abode of the dead in the heart of the earth. Hades means the abode of the dead in the heart of the earth. But there is another word that is used in the Greek 
as it refers and is translated by the word hell, it is the word Tartarus. It refers to the prison of the bottomless pit. There is a reference as well in a literal statement that calls the, calls it the bottomless pit. There are three compartments that are identified in Scripture that are called Hades or Sheol, the abode of the dead in the heart of the earth. There is paradise, often referred to as Abraham's bosom. There is a place called torments. And then there is the bottomless pit, the abyss, the prison, Tartarus. Believers who die prior to the resurrection of Jesus Christ went to the heart of the earth to an area called paradise or Abraham's bosom. They were there until the ascension of Jesus Christ after his resurrection. And we are told he took Abraham's bosom, paradise, those believers that had died prior to his resurrection, he took them to heaven. And the throne room of God is now where Abraham's bosom or paradise is located. The second compartment was placed called torments, and it's where all unbelievers from all ages are held until the judgment day. They are held in Tartarus, or in uh, uh, torments. And then there is the bottomless pit, and the only inhabitants of that at the present time are the fallen angels that cohabited with women that are the point of our text in Peter and the reference in Jude. The only ones there at the present time in the bottomless pit in Tartarus in the prison are these fallen angels. And they are going to be released according to our prophecy that we studied just last year where we saw that in the middle of the tribulation at three and a half years into the tribulation those fallen angels are going to be released upon the earth and they are going to wreak havoc. That will mean the bottomless pit is empty during the last three and a half years of the, of the tribulation. But at the end of the tribulation, when Christ comes back, the Satan himself is going to be bound and placed in the bottomless pit and kept there for the thousand years of the millennial reign upon the earth. So he has no influence. At the end of that thousand years, he's released for a short season, his final attempt, and he is cast then into the lake of fire. If God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to Tartarus, the bottomless pit, the lowest abyss, the prison. If he did that, then he hath reserved judgment for the others as well. The real proof that these angels are involved in the infiltration of the human race is found in verse 7 of the epistle of Jude. He hath reserved, literally he hath kept under careful guard in everlasting bonds under gloomy darkness with a view to judgment resulting in separation of that great day. So this is a reference to the tribulation. The last three and a half years called the great tribulation. The angels that cohabited with women will be released and then we will have the return of Christ. In Revelation chapter 9, verses 1 through 11, the fifth angel sounded, John says, and I saw a star fall from heaven 
under the earth, and to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and there arose a smoke out of the pit, as the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth, and unto them was given power as to the scorpions of the earth having power. And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. And to them it was given that they should not kill them, but that they should be tormented five months. And their torment was as the torment of a scorpion when he striketh the man. In those days shall men seek death and shall not find it, shall desire to die and death shall flee from them. And the shape of the locusts were likened to horses prepared into battle and on their heads were as it were crowns like gold and their faces were like the faces of men and they had the hair of women and their teeth were as the teeth of lions and they had breastplates as it were breastplates of iron and the sound of their wings as the sound of chariots of many horses running to battle and they had tails like unto scorpions and there were stings in their tails and their power was to hurt men five months and they had a king over them which is the king of the bottomless pit his name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon but in the Greek tongue his name is Apollyon. Verse 6 says, The angels, the one not having kept their their involitate, their original position of preeminent dignity, but once and for all they abandon their personal dwelling place with a view to the judgment resulting in separation of the great day in everlasting bonds under gloomy darkness he is kept under careful guard with a view of judgment resulting in the separation of that great day. The rebellious angels are used by both Jude and Peter as an example of apostasy. Their problem was one of deserting their original design that God had attempted and attempting to thwart the plan of God. As we move to verse 5 in Second Peter, we have a further reference to us that we have just examined here in the book of Jude. Peter is making reference to that in verse 5, and he said, And he spared not the old world, but he saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. And did not spare the ancient world. But he guarded Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, as a matter of principle, bringing on the flood on a world of men that were destitute of reverential awe. In his first epistle, Peter had addressed this situation that he describes here in our text in Second Peter to establish the salvation which was ours in Jesus Christ. Back in First Peter chapter three, verses eighteen through twenty-two, he says, And Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. That's the angels in Tartarus. Which sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. The light figure, wherein even baptism, does also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. 
Jesus, after his death and resurrection, visited Tartarus. Were the fallen angels that cohabited with women are arrested and retained until the middle of the tribulation. He went and preached to them. No, it was more like a na 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 na. <laughs> well, maybe with a little more dignity than that. The word preach means to make a victorious proclamation. We have overcome. It's not the word to to evangelize that is translated preach, but it means to make a victorious proclamation. He made a trip there and announced his victory to those fallen angels that are incarcerated there. So in our text, in 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter warns us of false teachers who will attempt to make merchandise of us. And we marvel that God continues to tolerate such false teaching and apostasy to infiltrate the church. So here Peter assures us there's a payday coming. We've seen some examples of that judgment with the angels and with him wiping out all of humanity that had been infiltrated in that period of time be leaving only one family, Noah, his wife, their three sons and their wives, as having not been touched. But 20 years further into the scene, if God had not intervened, even that would have been wiped out. The Lord keeps on knowing then how to deliver those who are characterized by a Godward attitude that does that which is not pleasing to Him, to deliver them out of their trials and to deliver those who do not conform to His plan to punishment and to condemnation. As we go to the verses following in our text in Second Peter, we will see how these examples come into play. But it all begins at salvation. The Bible says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Bible says, With the heart man believes unto righteousness, but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved. So to this point in this epistle, we have seen that we are to study the Word of God so that we do not become the merchandise of false teachers. We'll pick this up then in our study next week as we move on through our text.